Welcome to the 372nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Doles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Dr. Vipul Shah, the medical director of the R.P. Shah Memorial Trust Against COVID-19 in Lucknow, India. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. This is a special COVID Calls at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 4th, 2021, there are 5,022,082 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. South Korea reports 2,916 deaths, just as the country is entering a new phase, which it calls with corona, the opening up more than it has in previous months. The nation of India reports 459,191 deaths from COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, The Devastation Caused by COVID Calls for a Reinvention of the Obituary. This appeared in the Indian Express and was written by Amrita Dutta. It appeared July 28th of this year, 2021. In the months since the pandemic began, my colleagues and I have written, commissioned, and edited numerous obituaries, writes Amrita Dutta. Those who went too soon, others who were not deceived by time. Not all of these deaths were due to COVID-19, but they have felt part of a greater relentless toll. Most journalists on an obituary deadline dwell little on the fact of death. They are keener on the right anecdote, the elegant line. I think of the obituary as a celebration of life, said Anne Rowe, the obituary's editor for The Economist known for immersive portraits of politicians, generals, singers, and actors. In death's departure, the defiance of the living is that we look back by staging a life in 1,000 words, by retelling the singular joys and quirks of a person's life. An obituary of Marcel Proust told us that, quote, his apartment in Paris was lined throughout with cork in an ineffectual attempt to keep out the uproar, uproar of the nosiest to keep out the uproar of the noisiest city in the world. Obituaries, spiky with criticism, even malice, are important. They are antidotes to easy pieties and return us to the messiness of life. A journalistic detachment, or the pleasure of a good copy, is harder when you are as much a part of an unfolding tragedy as those you write on. When you have stayed up in dread at the sound of ambulance sirens, when you've lost friends and family, when the writing has been knocked out of you by fear, what is this day, one of us exclaimed recently, on a day bludgeoned by news of the deaths of Sarika Sikri, Gautam Benegal, and Danish Siddiqui? 
In the early months of the pandemic last year, the obituary had felt like an intimate, consoling genre. It made space for the sorrow that had become heavy and inarticulate with isolation. As eyes used to the glare of day learned to see the shades of twilight, it made us aware of a shared mortality, otherwise a blur in our frenzied everyday. Last year, as the COVID toll mounted, newspapers in the West commissioned obits of ordinary people, and not just public figures, who died of COVID-19, a way to comprehend the scale of an exponential tragedy. The New York Times series, Those We Have Lost, ran until June of this year, profiling 500 COVID-19 victims. They stood in for the staggering number of victims whose lives we could not possibly recount, said series editor Daniel Waken. Who have we in India lost? In Gujarat, pages and pages of paid death notices in local newspapers became a way for journalists to question the official death toll. The debate over undercounting COVID deaths is an ongoing one. Some estimates of excess deaths put India's COVID-19 death toll near 4 million. This article again appeared in July of 2021. And yet the dead, those we have lost, risk becoming a faceless plural, their humanity buried in statistics. The obituarist's impulse to remember and rescue a life from oblivion is up against a brazen denial. The government's reply in the Rajya Sabha that no states reported oxygen deaths anywhere in the country is just one example of how power is wielded against collective lived experience. There has been no acknowledgement, forget accountability, for the central and state government's brutal abandonment of citizens during the second wave. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has congratulated the chief minister of a state in which the COVID dead were flung into the Ganga or buried into the shallow sand on riverbanks for his outstanding work in dealing with the second wave. Can the debate over excess mortality alone lead us to a reckoning if we dare not speak of our excess grief? For despite divisive politics and the fractures of caste and religion, this is the common ground we stand on. Too many of us have died. Their obituaries unwritten. RJD MP Manoj Jha's moving speech in the Rajya Sabha was a rare acknowledgement of this collective loss. The monsoon session, he reminded fellow parliamentarians, had opened with a listing of unprecedented 56 obituaries. Look for the figures in your own pain and loss, he told the House. It might be naive to expect other politicians to follow him, to open up Parliament to a collective testimony of loss. Ordinary lives, we know, are worth little in this country, the author writes. We have struggled to come to terms with memories of collective trauma, such as the partition, though we wield it easily as a weapon. 1918 Spanish flu pandemic led to 20 million deaths in the subcontinent and is scarcely remembered. Between devastation and resilience, though, lies the work of the memorialist. Perhaps an artist, such as Svetlana Aleksevich, who has forged literature out of collective memories, retrieved the splintered truth about war and trauma through countless interviews with little people can show us the way. In my books, these people tell their own little histories and big history is told along the way. We haven't had time to comprehend what already has and is still happening to us. We just need to say it, she said in her Nobel lecture. Will the obituarist listen? The article was... The devastation caused by COVID calls for a reinvention of the obituary appeared July 28, 2021 by Amrita Dutta.
Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest, Dr. Vipul Shah. Vipul Shah is the Medical Director and Consultant for Pediatric Orthopedics, Pediatric Spine and Scoliosis at the R.P. Shah Memorial Trust for Children with Disabilities in Lucknow, India. He's the Medical Director also of the R.P. Shah Memorial Trust Against COVID-19. A graduate of GSVM Medical College in Kanpur, India, he's also Patient Care Coordinator for UNICEF. He was, among many honors and uh, global uh, works that he's done in medicine, he was the first non-American candidate to win the prestigious CART Fellowship of the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine, and he's a member of the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine since 2017. Dr. Vipul Shaw, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you. It's been an honor. I'd like to start out the way I usually do, find out where you're calling from and what does the pandemic situation look like there today? Uh, I'm calling from Lucknow, Uttar Pradesh. Uh, that's not too far from Delhi, like 45 minutes flight from Delhi. It's uh, Uttar Pradesh is the largest and the most populous state in this country, in India. And currently we have, uh, you know, an ebb in terms of the number of COVID uh, cases that we are seeing in Uttar Pradesh. But there's, uh, you know, there are pockets of uh, increased numbers uh, in Kerala, which is down south. So uh, we are enjoying the ebb, but uh, we are also afraid of what comes in the future. I'd like to ask you if you would share a personal memory of this time, I'm sure you have many, but maybe you could tell us something that really strikes you as uh, really kind of capturing the grain of this COVID period for you. Uh, there are some personal anecdotes that I can tell you. Uh, my wife is a gynecologist and she is at a hospital which has to cater to 100 OPD patients every day, irrespective of uh, you know, uh, what the pandemic looked like. So uh, we were uh, very tensed about her being exposed to the virus. Uh, and I live in a multi-generational house with my parents. That's the norm in India. So my parents are 75 years plus, and my kids are nine-year-old twins. I have the luxury to, uh, since I do pediatric orthopedics, a lot of it is, uh, are things that have been there for a long period of time and that can be done on uh, online, uh, you know, with online methods. But for, for my wife, it was always a tension that we had. For one full year before the vaccine came in, uh, she was in a different room, a separate room with attached washroom uh, away from the kids. And uh, we used to see each other from a distance of 18 feet. Uh, there were times when my kids uh, used to talk to her, uh, you know, from an adjacent room using WhatsApp and uh, Zoom calls. Uh, it was difficult. Uh, she had her own, uh, you know, issues of mental trauma that she uh, had. And uh, so we were one of those people who were really touched by, our lives were personally really touched by uh, the advent of vaccination. We were pro-vaccinators throughout because we realized early on, you know, before, even before others could, uh, 
that vaccination is probably going be the key to some sort of normalcy. So once the vaccination happened, uh, we uh, not only tested ourselves pre-vaccination pre for our anti-spike antibodies, uh, we also tested ourselves, you know, post uh, vaccination with anti-spike antibodies to find out how uh, immune we were and how immune were our parents were before we allowed my wife to uh, you know come in and mingle with the other members of the family so it was difficult and uh, the second part that i always remember is uh, even after taking so much care when the delta wave struck in after 3 months uh, you know our worst fears came in to be true my wife uh, she got in the infection uh, uh, she was almost asymptomatic just a little you know uh, sniff snuffle here and there and then uh, i got covid and my dad got covid and uh, so i was there you know my oxygen dropped till 93 uh, 92 my dad's oxygen was dropping till 90 we were lying prone and you know since at that point of time the delta wave was at its peak uh, as a physician uh, as a care provider my job was also to keep the morale of the team high so i used to uh, pick up uh, calls of not only you know members of the medical fraternity uh, you know trying to treat them uh, i was also you know picking up uh, calls of random strangers that you know our medical colleagues used to send across to me they were like 2 o'clock at night 3 o'clock at night and you know again at 5 in the morning uh, uh, we've been through and that that images uh, will uh, haunt us you know some some of those patients we lost some of them you know we were able to save so there are some uh, you know some very poignant images that will remain us with uh, with us uh, throughout my life and uh, another instance that i you know clearly remember is i uh, throughout the pandemic i was walking 7 kilometers like 10000 uh, meters every day uh, 10000 steps every day and uh, when i got infected it was difficult for me to climb a you know flight of stairs so i have a fair idea of how bad covid could be thank you for sharing those stories and images uh are Everyone in your family is recovered and okay now. You're having long COVID symptoms. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm able to walk uh, almost the same duration, but you know, I still have trouble when I lie down on my back. Yeah. I have uh, some sense of uh, you know uneasiness when I do that. So, and on top of it, I've lost a couple of hairs. So that's the other part of long COVID. I can also imagine you you know lying prone because of the breathing difficulty 93 92 oxygenation is no joke that's really bad yeah. and um but yet fielding calls still and i've talked to other healthcare providers throughout the pandemic and um your work doesn't necessarily end when you're off the clock or even when you're sick does it oh no oh no i i would say you know i couldn't say that in public at that point of time that i have been infected because uh as a member of uh, the team which was pushing uh, you know vaccinations at that point of time it would have broken uh, you know the uh, speed of vaccinations that we were uh, trying to achieve so uh, there was 
it was known to only a couple of close you know friends who were treating me and uh, you know keeping a tab we had a, a small you know sub group amongst uh, the 10000 healthcare workers that we have in the group so, so we watched like each other's to... back essentially yeah i i have many questions about the work you're you know you're doing now um i guess the first one is really just about what the what the hospital you work at is like what the RP Shaw Hospital is like for children, and tell us also about the Memorial Trust Against COVID project. Okay, so uh, the RP Shaw Memorial Trust was registered approximately eleven years ago. The RP Shaw uh, Trust is uh, named after my grandfather, uh, Mr. RP Shaw. Uh, he, uh, you know, when the partition happened in India. He was one of those few people who uh, had definitely come into India a little earlier than the partition, but uh, he was a big pusher for uh, education and care of uh, people who needed education and care of people who uh, couldn't afford healthcare. So uh, once I finished my education, uh, my I am a orthopedic surgeon. Then I trained in Mumbai and then went to US, uh, you know, training further. Once I was settled, uh, my father and I sat down one fine day and decided, you know, we need to do something for the people and the kids, you know, who are not able to access our services. So that's how the RP Shah Memorial Trust was incorporated. And then uh, at one point of time, we were running 17 centers across North India. I was literally on the on flights. I was not spending as much time home, uh, barely a week at home, and then. The rest three weeks in the month, you know, I was traveling and then uh, my kids were born. You know, they were premature. Uh, my wife is a gynecologist and still they were premature and they were low birth weight. And that changed, you know, my uh, uh, my vision of uh, my duties towards the family. And then I started settling down a little, uh, ensuring that we try and build a, a super speciality a referral center in Uttar Pradesh, which uh, doesn't have any pediatric orthopedic surgeon at this point of time. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a super speciality. Not m many people take up that job. So uh, that's how we uh, went up, uh, you know, and I was constantly traveling and tra trying to bring the latest technological know-how uh, back home at the least possible cost. So when the uh, pandemic struck, uh, I think, you know, uh, I was uh, well placed at that point of time to uh, get in people. Uh, I think the human resources were the most important thing to generate. So uh, there's a saying, you know, that uh, the Battle of Waterloo was won in the playing fields of Eton. And I think uh, there's there's a parallelism that I can draw here. Uh, so I uh, did my undergraduation from GSVM Medical College, Kanpur. And uh, I think the parallelism is that uh, I had a close knit group of seniors and juniors and colleagues, which I could anytime pick up my phone and uh, you know call them up and seek their uh, experiences out. We were all, you know, across the globe trying to uh, find out more about the disease. So uh, that's how, you know, these these guys, uh, they were spread all across the country. Some of them uh, were abroad. Uh, 
we we used to sit down for an hour every night on conference calls to try and uh, you know share what we knew at that point of time and also to uh, ensure that we don't miss anything so that's how the you know we we at this initial uh, point of time we didn't name it as arpisha memorial trust against covid that was way later but we uh, started pulling in people from all across the globe we thought uh, understood our core values uh, wanted to read and discuss so that is how you know uh, i wasn't a very uh, regular user of facebook i used to like post once in 3 months or something and then those uh facebook group uh, you know exploded with people and we started uh, posting like 30 uh, odd posts every day pulling in uh, you know people who could help us understand so that use of social media particularly early in the pandemic i mean we've heard a lot about social media in terms of spreading disinformation but let's focus on the other side of it first it seems like you built an enormous and powerful community quite quickly using social media were you surprised by that no uh, i wasn't initially because uh, most of them were friends and friends of friends so uh, they were there on the horizon but uh, yes i think you know uh, we leveraged the power of social media positively uh, there's always a, a positive and a negative spin to every story The other thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, just coming into the pandemic. So, being that you're, you know, there working um, at the hospital you do, the RP Shaw Memorial Trust for Children with Disabilities, you have a special vantage point um for people who may have already had um pre-existing conditions or or some sort of, you know, greater likelihood, I suppose, of being exposed to the virus. Um and and i think maybe early and you you're the doctor so you should tell me but how much did we know early on how much did you know in india early on as to how the virus would spread did you already have a sense that the kind of patients that you see would be particularly vulnerable when did you get a clearer sense of the pandemic okay. is my question i think i think very early on i'll tell you why uh, in 2013 if i remember correctly we uh, uh put across you know you know based on my experiences with these children with special needs we put across uh, a question to ourselves you know we are seeing these children every winters uh, they have uh, respiratory issues now what do we do about it so we started uh, looking at the literature and finally we decided let's uh, give them uh, influenza shots every year flu shots every year to look at how they respond and we were uh, really surprised by what we saw the number of uh, these children uh, dropped down enormously and we collected that data and presented it at the american academy of cerebral palsy and then next year we added colostrum to the to the same group and it increased the you know efficacy all the more those children were uh, able to do physical therapy the number of episodes that they had of cough and cold uh, the number of hospitalizations they had dropped tremendously so we had an idea of you know these children are at risk and uh, other thing we probably you know at our uh, baseline understood uh, 
you know, most uh, parents in our experience with children with such issues come to me and they ask me, they want a clear cut answer. Or how would my child be after a couple of set period of time, let's say six months, eight months, one year. And I, you know, realized that, uh, you know, there would be children who I thought would do well, wouldn't be doing not as well after six months. And there would be children I thought were hopeless who would be, you know, showing uh, large strides in improvement. So over a period of time, I learned to say, you know, we are proposing to do this. This is the scientific basis of why I say this. And let's follow it up, you know, on a long term basis. I think that thought process of not jumping to conclusions uh, right away uh, has stood the test of time and has helped us uh, navigating the initial troubled waters during the initial days of the pandemic. We never knew what would work. Uh, we had a fair, rough idea, I would say. Not a fair idea, a rough idea, we would say. And uh, we had to build on what we knew. So to say, uh, for example, that the herd immunity will come at this percentage or not would have been, you know, uh, wrong. So we uh, purposely, you know, kept the messaging truthful that we really don't know everything. And... Uh, there were people who were able to accept it as, you know, the truth over a period of time. So um, just to keep going along these these lines, what was your advice, you know, particularly early in the pandemic about children going back to school or, or whether or not children should be in school? I mean, this has been an issue that in the United States and Europe has been followed very closely, but I know less about the way those decisions were made in India. I think uh, uh, we had two uh, things going in favor of us. The first is Indians, as since I said we are a multi-generational uh, family, most Indians, like close to like 40 to 50% Indians, especially in the tier two and tier three cities, live with their parents. So uh, the the thought process of uh, caring for the old in in family is still there. Uh, during the first wave, we were able to shield our older uh, population very well. Similarly for the children, you know, since you have children and you have old people, I think it makes a big difference in terms of how you approach the same question of life. Uh, the schools uh, closed down pretty early uh, in the pandemic. Then there was a period of time before the second wave, you know, every uh, trough in the pandemic brings with it a new set of questions. People want uh, to take those liberties. So uh, I think uh, that was a question, especially in some uh, states in India. But uh, the second uh, wave uh, dropped those ideas. And, you know, uh, we haven't had that big uh, issue since then. Uh, except for some pockets of people who, who still feel, you know, that they needed to, uh, the kids to go to school physically. A large part of schools have been online. A large number of teachers have been vaccinated. I think that's, that's the good part of it.
So let's turn to that since you mentioned vaccination. And I just want to remind uh, listeners once again that I'm talking to Dr. Vipul Shaw today about COVID in India and the work at his hospital where he uh, was just telling us it established 11 years ago, the R.P. Shaw Memorial Trust for Children with Disabilities. So you've been very involved in vaccine education, um, in vaccine research, in advocacy for vaccine usage. And I wonder, I want to start my first question about this is just how's the vaccination situation going there now? Are there still pockets of hesitancy and where are they? Okay, so uh, I think uh, initially when the vaccines were uh, brought in, we had our own uh, degree of resistance. And I think uh, that resistance has been uh, on political lines. Uh, I think uh, that is not only true in India, that's there across the globe. So uh, we made it a point that uh, we will not uh, fall towards party lines. So as I said, you know, the big group, uh, even amongst medical professionals, we have people who uh, tow party lines. And uh, when I say we, uh, I am just the face of the group. I am the face of the group because I have always uh, been apolitical. You know, which party I vote for, uh, uh, who is my hero, uh, that's never there on social media. So. Uh, I think it's an important job uh, not only to be apolitical, but also to be seen as apolitical and scientific. And I think uh, that's where we uh, scored major gains in terms of uh, ability to convince people that we mean uh, uh, business and that's not on party lines. So, given that, that's, I mean, that's an important point to make, that you've been able to maintain a sort of a, a stance and a sense of trust throughout the pandemic. Um, what has been your message? So I want to ask you sort of like how you communicate with different groups. So for example, healthcare workers who've had some vaccine hesitancy, how have you reached out to them? I think uh, the core group uh, has its own uh, ways of dissemination of information. The information, the basic information was there on our Facebook page. But uh, we need to understand, you know, uh, there are low hanging fruits in the vaccination uh, uh, strategy and they are difficult fruits to get. So uh, I think, you know, with the Facebook group, we were able to easily get the low hanging fruit. Uh, the messaging has to be consistent. It has to be persistent and it has to be, I, as I you know, uh, heard somewhere, it has to be uh, six words or less. Uh, that's what I, you know, I, I was reading in an interesting article and it has to be repeated ad nauseum. So uh, uh, I think uh, we need to also understand, the group also understood early on that who we need to identify who were the people who were anti-vaccine, uh, were they anti-vaccine because they did not believe the science or they were anti-vaccine because of their political beliefs or, uh, you know, they were anti-vaccine because they were sitting on the fence and watching others how they do with the vaccines. 
so as i said you know we uh, first targeted the low hanging fruits you know people who were almost ready to uh, get the vaccine and i think a lot of messaging happened there uh, we also in our group had people who were uh, tabulating the stories of healthcare workers who passed away very early on we started doing that and those personal stories were shared with the group we understood uh, the value of vaccinations and that's how most of the fruit was low hanging because uh, people understood that this is the probably the only way uh, and then there was a dichotomy you know there were a group of people who were interested in a vaccine but not in the in a particular vaccine and i think you know that has a parallelism even in the us uh, i have been talking to uh, friends on clubhouse i have been talk talking to you know uh, people who have been vaccine skeptical and i think uh, you know that's what i have been pushing for uh, even in the us that uh, not everybody is anti vax there are some anti vaccine uh, groups and then there are vaccine skeptics those vaccine skeptics are probably more afraid of the new technology that is there available in the us and they would probably you know if if given the chance they would take a novavax vaccine instead of the mrna vaccine so uh, when when we saw that same uh, you know issue developing in a part of india called as tamil nadu i told my guys uh, colleagues we also wrote to the government you know if the if the people of tamil nadu do not want x vaccine there's no uh, advantage in pushing the x vaccine let's give them the y vaccine let them take it and uh, no, not having a vaccine is worser than having a less efficacious vaccine or more efficacious vaccine to my mind it was clear early on that uh, having a vaccine is better than not having a vaccine so these were uh, some issues that we you know uh, answered and then we also uh, realized early on that if you do not uh, thrash uh, in the social media space a story that is illogical immediately then it grows hmm. so you have to thrash it right away and at most places for it to uh, you know die down as fast as possible hmm. uh, because after a certain period of time after after a point you know if you try and thrash it it's going to grow larger and bigger so that's a lot of work to do i mean it, in addition to your clinical work you now have to be a sort of a communications manager and trying to follow social media to to locate dangerous um you know rumors conspiracy theories i appreciate the way you also sort of broke that down to say I think we don't talk about this enough that that there are some people who are waiting to be convinced or they're waiting to see because of maybe previous experiences they've had with the medical system. There's other people who it's not about the vaccine at all. They're signaling something political and the vaccine is just a mode of communication. They're going to tell you they don't want it because they're telling you something about who they are. Um but you have to sort of parse all of that and then move into the social media space and refute. Did you find yourself I mean maybe is that something you spend a lot of your time doing? uh my wife is calling uh, social media as my second wife uh i am spending close to 20 hours a day 
on social media trying to grab in the best possible you know information trying to refute stories to uh, you know collect information and then disseminate and then the best part is the discussion part i think you know as we discuss the emerging evidence that we have that helps us you know strengthen the bond and the trust that our colleagues have in the discussion so you also have been very active in lobbying for vaccination for teachers you alluded to this earlier yes um Say more about that. What's been your approach? First of all, I guess it's something you had to bring up with the government, and then you also have to convince um, teachers that that's a good idea. I'm curious to know how that works in India. Uh, is it through teachers' unions or state organizations that then mandate it for teachers, or is it literally a teacher-by-teacher -teacher decision as to whether or not they want to be vaccinated? I think, you know, uh, the, the decision was in several layers. It, Rome was not built in a day. so. Uh, you know, uh, early on, as I said, you know, let's catch the low hanging fruit. There were teachers who I knew or my colleagues knew. Uh, early on, we also realized, you know, that doctors could be the best example towards the society. So, uh, you know, we have a lack doctors, which is like 100,000 doctors in India. And we calculated that if each doctor is able to convince 100 people, uh, we would be able to get this story across. So uh, when we decided that, we started uh, posting, you know, pictures of what are getting shots, our families getting shots on social media, and uh, we asked colleagues to make those pictures, their profile pictures, so that you know all their friends and family members could see those pictures. And uh, we kept, you know, telling people, you know. Uh, encourage others to speak to you about you know the questions that they have so it was uh, a rippling effect as far as teachers were concerned uh, every doctor is in contact with four or five teachers at least uh, be it their own teachers be it the teachers of their uh, wards or the teachers that they have as uh, patients uh, we initially on told uh, all government officials that we could, uh, you know, catch and we could, you know, send across that schools will not be open till the teachers get vaccinated, till those people who carry and ferry those students to school are vaccinated. So the school lobby was also interested in getting the teachers vaccinated. Uh, and then the two, uh, you know, merged into each other with the coming of the second wave. The second wave was uh, really ferocious, and uh, it brought home the point that if we are not vaccinated, we are not going to make it. Uh, happily for us, uh, the percentage of healthcare workers vaccinated in India is 100%, 100%. Uh, we've been able to uh, ensure that healthcare workers uh, not only were vaccinated, they became the focus of our anti-vaccine crusade. So that 100% is not possible without a strong government mandate. And um, I'm curious how that worked out. I, I would beg to differ a little uh, oh. because, uh, you know, uh, through various channels, we were able to 
as I said, we were able to get the low-hanging fruit. The, the high-hanging fruit, those who were skeptical, were, uh, you know, we made it a point every day. For example, I would pick up my phone and talk to 10 people who I thought were skeptical and who themselves were the paragons of spreading that disinformation that, that the herd immunity has arrived. So, uh, you know, picking up the phone sometimes can help you get the low-hanging fruit. There's, and then, as I said earlier, you not only have to be neutral, but you have to be seen as being neutral. So, you know, the advantage of being seen as neutral helped us go get those people who were skeptical because of, you know, their issues with the government or uh, uh, there was, was a very small percentage who were concerned that the vaccines have been brought early. They uh, were convinced by the fact that the second wave came in and they were convinced by the fact that, the grow, that a growing number of colleagues across in and around them were vaccinated and did not have any trouble. Hmm. So we didn't hmm. have a mandated government approach. Oh, um, and just following up, on, I, sh I meant to ask you this earlier, but the, um, the vaccine that's being produced now in India, this is the Covavax, if I'm, if I'm right, uh, or you can correct me we, on that. We, we are, uh, you know, probably the, the country with the largest array of vaccines. Hmm. We have the AstraZeneca, which is the largest produced. Uh, then we have a killed virus vaccine. Then we have the Sputnik vaccine. Hmm. We also have, at least on paper, you know, allowed uh, Moderna to come in, but uh, hasn't come in as yet. Hmm. Uh, and then we are also producing, you know, Biological E with Texas. Uh, uh, you know, uh, university and, uh, you know, their group, Baylor College uh, right. group, is also, is also producing another vaccine, Novavax. So that's, that's so that's in addition to Novavax, yeah. yes, yes. So that group is also producing with, uh, you know, Biological E in India. So there are a couple of vaccines that we have, and we've always said, you know, uh, take the vaccine that suits your uh, thought process, but take it. Okay, thank you for that in, uh, additional information and for educating me on that. And, and and so, would you be willing to say at this point that everybody who wants to be vaccinated in India can be scheduled for a, a vaccination at this point? Oh, oh yes, oh yes. Uh, uh, at this point of time, uh, vaccines are available only for uh, people eighteen and above. Uh, we've been pushing the government to allow us vaccines for kids. They are. Uh, you know, provisionally allowed, but the the program has not been rolled out as yet. So, uh, eighteen and above, uh, anybody can uh, schedule a vaccination and get it. And uh, the good part it is, initially we had you know a small percentage of people who had to pay or who could pay and get the vaccines to jump the line. Now, uh, the government has made it. Uh, available free of cost. So that has also increased the number of people who are getting ready to get vaccinated. So as a physician who is a specialist of uh, pediatrics, then you must be also very uh, excited by the opportunity for 18 and under to be vaccinated in India. What's the timeline for that, do you think? I think uh, another month, 
or so. That fast. Uh, mm. uh, so, you know, as I said, we need to not only uh, present data, we also have to present as, a, as an example. So when the pediatric vaccines were being, uh, you know, uh, researched on during trials, I got both my kids, uh, you know, enrolled in a trial. They are mm. nine-year-old daughters and they got vaccinated. And uh, then the group decided that we will uh, try and enroll as many of our own children in, into those trials to build uh, you know, consensus and confidence in the medical community. I think that's been, uh, that's been achieved. I think uh, it's only a question of time. The moment we have pediatric vaccinations allowed in India, most doctors will uh, get their children vaccinated and that would probably help increase the number of vaccinations in India. Talking to Dr. Vipul Shah of the R.P. Shah Memorial Trust Against COVID-19 on COVID Calls today. And uh, Dr. Shah, let me ask you, uh, every day on COVID Calls, I read the statistics that come from the Johns Hopkins University coronavirus um, dashboard that they've created. And um, of course, there's lively discussion always about cause of death and attribution it's not always so clear cut, um, but the issue of, of undercounting in India is one that has been um, really vexing, I think, to people. And the number that they have up right now, uh, officially, of deaths in India is 459,191. I read that at the top of the program. How does that number sound to you? Does that sound accurate? See, uh, even before the pandemic, we were counting only 22% of deaths because those when that 22% of deaths were happening in hospitals they were registered deaths so uh, we have to take uh, you know any number of uh, guesses with a pinch of salt but having said that uh, i i will accept that the number of deaths is higher i will accept that uh, you know, we need to, to do a little better job in counting those deaths. But I definitely do not accept that the numbers that have been paraded across the world. Uh, and, you know, I have tons of uh, parallelisms that I could probably draw. Uh, but my uh, viewpoint is that the number is approximately like 8 lakh or something, uh, 800,000 or something. And considering, you know, the large uh, population of India, I think that's not a bad number. And I think a lot of it happened because of our social structure, which is not being discussed, you know. Uh, most of our adults, the 60 plus were shielded like crazy. And that helped us drop the numbers tremendously and helped us control the numbers of deaths in the pandemic. I suppose, you know, when we talk about um, these death statistics, I mean, it's on, on the one hand, it's it's just about having accuracy in epidemiology. But on the other hand, it does point to um, the problem. You said it's you know, sort of problem of social structure. It's, you know, problems of who's counted in what kind of facilities and who isn't counted. I guess I want to ask you a little bit more about that and whether or not you think this time will be one in which you might see reform 
in the Indian health system, in the medical system, in access to hospitals. I've talked to lots of healthcare providers, and I don't, and people don't, dis, people don't agree about this. And I'm sort of curious your perspective is: is this a moment which is grave enough that you expect to see reforms coming out of it? I think uh, you know. I'll give you an example. Uh, so today in the morning, today is Diwali. That's the largest festival in India. And amongst the various, you know, people give, uh, send each other gifts on Diwali. Uh, today, one of the gifts that I received from a colleague was an air purifier. Now, that's a small, you know, uh, token, but it's it's a symbol of the change that's happening. Is suddenly uh, after clean water, we have a clamor for clean air. I think uh, that change in how we approach medicine uh, is definitely there. It's not going to go away. Uh, some of you know people will definitely shift on to you know online consultation. It's easier. It's cheaper. And I agree that you know there are caveats to the efficacy, but there are a lot of things that can be done online. My practice is at this point of time, you know, after the second pandemic, two months till after the second pandemic, it was 100% online. And then I shifted to going to the clinic once a week and the next, last, the other six days I'm online. I think, uh, you know, people want to see me physically, but if I say now that I am available online for six days a week, there's an acceptance to the fact. And that acceptance is one huge difference uh, that the pandemic has made. Uh, there will definitely be other changes, you know. Uh, I think uh, there will be changes as to how uh, the society looks at medicine, how uh, physicians treat people. So these, some of these changes will be uh, will be permanent others will be there on the radar and will be uh, changes just waiting to happen i'm glad that you mentioned that it's uh diwali and i i meant to wish you a happy diwali at the beginning and then we got carried i got going on the conversation so happy diwali and, I, and thank you especially thank you. especially meaningful that you were willing to take some time away from um family today to to talk and um, it's interesting, you know, to hear you, you know, talk about ways that medical practice might be modified. That um, maybe more access could be provided. Uh, certainly, you know, in, in terms of vaccination, also we're right in the middle of this sort of global vaccination effort, and we put a lot of emphasis on skeptics and misinformation. I think sometimes we lose the bigger picture that a big percentage of the world's population is engaged in a simultaneous vaccination project. It's pretty astounding when you stop to think about it for a second. So we are seeing really um, life-changing, I think, you know, moves in medicine right now. It's probably really worth lingering on that for a moment. I, I want to also ask you um, about medical education um, at this time and how you think medical education in India particularly might change as a result of COVID. I think uh, that's a very appropriate question. You know, uh, uh, since this government came into uh, power, this is the Modi government, there's been an increased push to build more hospitals. 
build more uh, medical uh, schools. So uh, the number of medical personnel that we will probably see will increase. The question is uh, making sure that the quality of education does not deteriorate. Now, the pandemic has changed a lot of things. And one of those things that it has changed is uh, while we have more people interested in medicine as a career, and that's been happening for the last seven, eight years in India, uh, but uh, we also need to see the pandemic has uh, suddenly uh, forced people in the 50 to 65 bracket to sit back and think about what they want from life. And I think uh, a large number of people uh, in my uh, parallel age group are thinking of early retirement from medicine. They are thinking of how best they can you know, use their, uh, uh, their educational background in other vocations and how best they can uh, put uh, you know, medicine away and do something else which is as lucrative. So uh, while we have a higher number of people ready to enter medicine, there is definitely some attrition at the top. And that attrition at the top has to be prevented. Some attrition will also happen, at least in India, uh, because there would be, uh, there is sudden, you know, uh, demand of uh, people of Indian uh, origin, healthcare professionals of Indian origin across the world. For example, Australia is uh, suddenly opening up more slots for nursing. Uh, similarly for, uh, you know, uh, in the Gulf. So uh, some of that attrition may happen, you know, and uh, we need to try and do the best possible. Are you worried about that? I mean, that, that there will be an exodus of, of nurses and physicians to other countries that's seen an acute need um, for that as a result of the pandemic? Are there things that the government can do to forestall that? I think uh, I am definitely worried. Uh, there is no doubt about it. You know, uh, we can't wish it away. Um, the government has tried its, uh, you know, hands at trying to stop it. A uh, couple of years ago, I think three years ago, they asked, you know, they made it mandatory to get a good uh, conduct certificate from the Medical Council of India, which, uh, you know, they, they don't want to give. So, so thereby making it difficult for people to, uh, you know, relocate from India. But it's it's a difficult call, you know. People want to relocate. Uh, there are also people who want to come back to India, but that come the that you know process of coming back to India is a little delayed compared to the number of people who want to leave India. It's a difficult situation. One more thing I want to get to before we wrap up today is is um, looking ahead a little bit and the long COVID situation, which is one we don't have, a guess, a very good handle on yet, what that's going to look like. What kind of research are you engaged in in that? What kind of advocacy are you engaged in in that? I know you've been working um, with this network of, of yours to try to bring attention to that issue. This has been a week. I've talked to several guests about long COVID. I'm really eager to hear what you've got in the works on that particular front. I think uh, uh, 
very early on, we started uh, looking at long COVID. And the reason why I say that is uh, we looked at the number of people who had long haul symptoms, even in the other uh, MERS and SARS uh, pandemics. Uh, and uh, we realized that this is not something which will go away without scarring a lot of people. So uh, we were searching online and we started following these small groups of long haulers. And we've seen those long group of uh, groups of long haulers, you know, increase in numbers. One of the jobs that we did as a group was to bring that information into the uh, common medical world. You know, uh, initially, these long haulers were being gaslighted as psychotics or having, uh, you know, psychological symptoms. And that was the biggest problem that these long haulers uh, underwent. So, uh, you know, there's, there's now uh, with that amount of information of the long haulers, a growing uh, acceptance of their problems. Uh, in addition, we, you know, once, once the vaccination was being, you know, rolled out, uh, I have a smaller subset of long haulers in with which we do research. So we looked at that group and we said, you know, let's follow up those long haulers who got vaccinated. Now, those long haulers, 50% uh, of them stayed the same with the vaccines. 37% of them became better with the vaccines and 13% became worser with the vaccines. Now, that has allowed us to understand and get some handle on the pathology of the long haulers. The 13% who became worser are probably those people who have an autoimmune causation of the long hauler syndrome. The 37% who became better are probably those, uh, I would put them into two groups. Uh, the majority would be uh, people who had some reaction persistent reaction to the traveling uh, you know particles of the virus which could be uh, corrected by the vaccines and then there is uh, a fear that we have in that 37% is a small subgroup probably which has a persistent virus still there evading host immune response. So that we want to cull out and understand better. But then there's a 50% which will not show any advantage. Now that 50% would be the people who will not benefit as much with treatment. And I say that with a lot of fear. Because you know, uh, if you look at one year follow-up of long haulers, we see a mirror image of that number. 37% of long haulers have been suffering for more than a year. That's a huge number. And probably that comes from the number of people who've had some, some degree of permanent damage to their systems, which we cannot probably undo. So we, when we say we want to treat long haulers, the best treatment we always say is to prevent. You know, years ago, I, I was involved in a big battle wherein we, I was pushing for early treatment of autoimmune diseases. In all autoimmune diseases, there's a window of uh, 
wherein if you put that if you put it into use if you put inside your foot inside the door you will be able to modulate the body's response if you lose that chance and that window of opportunity then there's no way you can prevent things from happening and that's my fear the prevention of long haulers has to start by accepting that covid needs to be treated as early as possible so uh, initially i was also involved and i'm still in treating covid early project fluoxamine has been published as one drug uh, i know uh, angela uh, rearson who's been the one of the lead researchers in fluoxamine trial and i also know, know farid jalali who's been working on the serotonin pathway of treating early covid so what we found was that if we could probably treat covid early we could probably prevent long haul symptoms uh, by preventing the immune responses to to reach a level wherein they could become perpetually self multiplication hmm. multiplying well i I've learned so much in this conversation today, and uh, I hope we can have a chance to talk again. You know, I think this, particularly this issue around long haul COVID, is one I really, you know, the clarity that you're speaking and and the necessity for prevention. But um, we're looking at a public health crisis here, and um, I guess is it fair to say you're going to be treating long haul COVID patients for the rest of your career? I hope not. i hope to prevent it yeah uh, and i think you know uh, we have anecdotal evidence uh, amongst you know our group that we are not seeing as many long haulers in our group as we uh, see in other groups and the reason probably is we've been treating covid early and we've been treating it hard well i want to remind everyone that you've been listening to covid calls a special covid calls at 5:30 p.m. korea time and 2 p.m. look now time and uh you've been uh listening to my conversation with dr vipul shah who is the lead doctor of the memorial trust for children with disabilities the rp shah memorial trust for children with disabilities and look now and a master organizer of physicians and healthcare experts who've been trying to meet this um global pandemic Doctor appreciate your time I know you're busy and I learned a lot thanks so much Thank you Stay healthy everyone we'll see you next time on Covid calls mm-hmm.